You probably know that we're starting a new series. You can obviously tell that uh, things look a little bit different. We're going to be starting uh, this series in the book of Ruth. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and find your way to the book of Ruth. Look at your table of contents. That's totally good. That's why it's there. And uh, once you get to the book of Ruth, just hang on. We'll get there eventually. Let me tell you this. Um, We had a whole bunch of Ruth books for purchase that you could study alongside of us as many small groups and many people are going through. And unfortunately, we sold out of all the books. But as you saw on social media and also on our website, that you can download a PDF. And so you can still get the PDF for free. And uh, if my saying in life has always been, if it's free, it's for me. And so um, that's available to you. And you can download it, put it on one of your devices, and you can follow along with us as we work through it. Not the whole church is doing it, but most of our small groups are, are participating with us. So I want to let you know about that. We, uh, we decided to do this book for a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons is because it's, uh, it's really a significant book in the life of the church and also just as far as uh, we understand God's story of redemption. And you can tell that our tagline is a redemption story. And uh, one of the things about the book of Ruth, which I find so fascinating, is that the story covers a whole host of things that happened in human history which prepared the way for King David. And so the book of Ruth is really a prequel to 1st and 2nd Samuel. And if you remember back in the fall, we went through 1st and 2nd Samuel. And if you ever ask yourself the question, what happened just prior to 1st and 2nd Samuel, the book of Ruth is a great answer. In the book of Ruth, we're introduced to a whole host of characters, which eventually um, we will be introduced to one of the most significant characters in the book of Ruth, which we'll talk about in a second. But Ruth is really a, a historical book which tells the narrative, the prequel to First and Second Samuel, the rise of the kingdom. And uh, if you ever watch Star Wars or you're Star Wars fans, you know how they always have like uh, the episodes, but then they have these other movies that you're trying to make money with. And it's called like a blank story. You know what I'm talking about? So this is kind of that thing. It's a prequel, kind of fills in the blanks to what's going on in the, in the redemptive storyline. So it's a redemption story. But on top of being just a great story and helping us as a prequel to fill in the, the pieces, the missing pieces in the story, um, this book is also really significant because it teaches us about the person of God. And how it does that is it teaches us how God keeps his covenant. And that's one reason why we tacked on the book of Ruth to our covenant campaign. Because we wanted to, to understand as a church that a proper reading of the book of Ruth requires that we have an understanding of the Mosaic Covenant, and it also requires that we have an understanding of the Davidic Covenant. And when you have those two understandings of the Mosaic and Davidic Covenant, then when you read the book of Ruth, things just pop out, and you see things in ways that you've never seen before. And so we'll see that a little bit as well. And so it all fits together. First and Second Samuel, the covenants, and the book of Ruth are all one attempt for us to become better Bible readers, to fall in love with the Lord of the Bible, and to see how the Bible is one story that is ultimately about Jesus and how he's redeeming a people for himself. It's just a great story. The book of Ruth is my favorite book in the Bible. People ask me that often. It is my favorite. I know you're not allowed to have favorites, just like you can't have a favorite child. But nonetheless, I don't have a favorite child, but I have a favorite book in the Bible, and it's the book of Ruth. I told somebody that I was going to be preaching through the book of Ruth, and they said, really? That's like a women's ministry book, isn't it? And I said, oh, oh, oh. No, no, you have to realize that, uh, no, 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 this is a book for everyone and for all the the people. And uh, all the people get all the books, and all the books for all the people. And uh, so don't be hijacking none of these books. 
they're for us all to enjoy. And so the book of Ruth is, in my estimation, the most beautiful story uh, in the Bible. And uh, it's just one of my favorites because I just love stories. And this is a well-written story. So we're going to spend some time in it. One of the things that I need to make you aware of is the theological thing that is always running through the book of Ruth. And uh, that theological thing in the book of Ruth is significant. It's actually called divine providence and sovereignty. And so what I want to do is I want to just introduce you to that concept, ask the Lord to help us as we read through it, and then we'll tackle, tackle it. Divine providence is basically this. I'm going to repeat this a couple times for those of you taking notes, others of you that don't take notes and don't give a rip. This is your time to tune out. The divine providence is this. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he powerfully preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions in order to fulfill his purposes. Mouthful, right? Let me do it again. Divine providence is that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he powerfully preserves and governs all creatures and all their actions in order to fulfill his purposes. That's a huge truth of who God is. So let's pray to this Lord and this God. Father, we know that because of how Scripture reveals you, that you are sovereign over all things. You are the ruler. You are the king over creation. And that you are a God of providence that you continually uphold by the power of your word all things, that you are governing and sustaining all that you have created so that every action and every reaction and every molecule, molecule in the universe is being sustained and ordained and directed by you. And God, this is a huge teaching of the Bible, and it's hard for us as humans to grasp it. So I ask that through this book of Ruth, you would show us its truth and its comfort and its reality. That you are a God who is not disinterested, but you are a God who is present, who is near, and who is very much alive. And so God, we ask that this day, that you would do with it what you please and what you purpose, accomplish, what it is you seek to accomplish in and through us. And we'll give you the thanks for what that is. In Jesus' name, amen. Divine providence, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he powerfully preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions in order to fulfill his purpose. It's great, but is it true? I sat and I looked at the Bible and I thought, okay, how can, I, how can I show some verses that will just nail us in our hearts and bring home to us the reality and truth of this teaching? And so I came up with 200, over 270 verses. I thought perhaps we don't have that kind of time. So I'm going to narrow it down to a number of them that highlight the counsel of the Lord, the purposes for which he created things, the way in which he is actively involved in things that we even don't even don't realize. And, and so I, I picked a few of these. I'm going to start in Isaiah 46. We don't have them on the screen because my intention is to lay upon you a general feel for how God reveals himself. And so I'm asking that you would listen. God says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Psalm 65, 9. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And one of the most popular, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. And there are so many more. But the reality is this. God has a purpose for which he has designed the created world. And he's going to accomplish it because he's declared from the beginning what the end will be. And he has the power, the know-how, and the love to make sure that what he wants happens. Now, that is a great encouragement to us, and I know people push back on that quite a bit, and they're like, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And usually the yeah, but is followed by what about pain? What about suffering? What about bad things that happen to us? And I said, that's included. Think about this for a moment. If you encounter someone who is in pain and suffering, who is having a hard time, a death of a loved one, whatever it may be, think of how cruel it must be to stand in front of them and look at them and say, well, you know, you should be encouraged through this hard time. There's no God. So it's all on you. So hopefully you can get through it. Buck up. Or, or better yet, you can say, yeah, there is a God, but, he, but, but you know what? He's not in control. So he can't really do anything for you. So, so just buck up. If I'm ever in pain, and if that's ever a thought that you have, please don't talk to me. That will provide no encouragement whatsoever. But instead, think about this. If you're in pain and suffering, you can grab somebody by the cheeks, look them in the eye, and without lying and without being pretentious, you can tell them, I know this is hard. I know this is hurtful. God knows how painful it is. It should not be this way, but you must know God is in control. God can bring something good from this, so hold tight and cling to his promises. One way or another, God will bring about good from this. He'll get the glory, and ultimately, you'll get the joy trust him what would you like to hear it's just experientially we know this we want this to be true and we don't have to just want it to be true as like a wish we we want it to be true and lo and behold it is it's so true God is sovereign and providentially in control and I want to show you that he's not just in control of random things. God is in control of all things. In fact, the book of Ruth is so um, embedded with this truth that at the end of the book of Ruth, if you want to turn there to chapter 4, verse 18 to 22, we actually read about a genealogy. That is not interesting to most people. And even you are kind of like, genealogy, for real? Let's read this, and I want to show you how divine providence is working together to accomplish the purposes for which God intends to accomplish. 
by way of redemption. We read this. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The end of the book, remember, the last word usually is the significant word, right? The last word of the book of Ruth is David. The end of the book of Ruth is trying to get our attention that this story, though it is beautiful, though it is about Ruth and Naomi and various other characters, ultimately, this story is about God who takes human circumstances and human history and makes it such that he accomplishes his purposes for which he intends to accomplish. And he made sure through the book of Ruth that we understand God brought about David on purpose. Not only that, but he made sure that David would come to exist so that David would be promised an offspring. And through David, one day, that offspring would be none other than King Jesus. That's a part of God's plan. That's the unfolding redemptive story of the scriptures. And this is significant, so much so that when you turn to the New Testament, which I've, I've beat on this like a dead horse, you guys all know this. The opening verse of Matthew, chapter 1, is genealogy. More genealogy. What's going on with this? Boring. No. The book of, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the apostle Matthew opens up the New Testament in his gospel by saying he is the son of David, the son of of Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of what was promised to both Abraham and David. Isn't it interesting that Ruth closes with the genealogy and Matthew opens with the genealogy? Now I want to point your attention to the fact that they contain some of the same people. If you jump down to verse 5, here's where it gets really interesting. And if you're one of those people that tends to glance over and skim over genealogies, stop it. <laughs> verse 5. Salmon, you should recognize that name. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, when you look at those two verses, you see that there is there's this, this person fathered this person, but then all of a sudden you see that there's something unique in that. If you read the rest of the genealogy, you'll notice that there's three women that are mentioned, and they're highlighted by that little phrase, by. And so you have Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. And then you have Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. And then if you notice, Obed, the father of Jesse... No mom is included. And then you have, and Jesse, the father of David the king, no mom included. And then you have David was the father of Solomon. Once again, by the wife of Uriah. What in the world's going on here? Why mention some moms and not others? And I think it's a significant question because if you ask yourself, who are these women? What are they like and what was their life like? You're starting to get a glimpse into the very heart of God. Think about who Rahab is. You don't know who Rahab is? Let me introduce you. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, 
whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Think about that for a moment. Within the ancestry of none other than Jesus Christ is a woman named Rahab who was a prostitute. And then as we'll be introduced to a woman named Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. She is a foreigner. She is not counted among God's covenant people called the Israelites. She's outside of that. And we're also seeing in the genealogy the wife of Uriah known as Bathsheba, the woman who David sexually abused, the woman who lost a child because of that, the woman who would eventually become Solomon's mother, the woman who had her husband murdered by David. So within Jesus' ancestry are these three women, Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the foreigner, and Bathsheba, the one who doesn't even have a name in the genealogy, what is the Bible trying to communicate? It's trying to communicate the beautiful truth that God wants the outcasts. God wants the brokenhearted. God wants the lowly. God wants the humble. God wants the vulnerable. And most importantly, it demonstrates for us, God wants broken sinners. He is not ashamed to count among his people, to count among the ancestry of Jesus, the Son of God, to count among them those who have societal kind of things that you and I would probably delete from our social media accounts. I want to make sure there's no pictures to, to highlight what I did. I want to make sure that's deleted and whitewashed out of my history and out of my story. God doesn't do that. He's, a, he's not ashamed to call sinners to his family. I love that. It teaches that God is at work to accomplish his purposes of redemption. God is at work to call sinners to himself. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came for those who are weary and tired that they may have rest. Jesus came for those who are heavy laden and burdened that they may be eased. Jesus came to redeem people who will be called his beloved. That's the heart of God. Don't skip genealogies. What are you doing? You see what you would miss? But then we see the hidden work of God too. There's, there's an explicit teaching in the book of Ruth of how God works. We see it in Ruth chapter one, verse six. Explicitly, God is mentioned as the one who provides his people with food. Chapter 1, verse 6. But then at the end of the book, we see in chapter 4, verse 13, where God is once again explicitly mentioned as the one who gave Ruth and Boaz a son. Now, what's interesting is you have chapter 1 where God is mentioned in verse 6 that he is at work, and it's explicit, and it's visible, and it's in your face. But then you have to wait until chapter 4 to see another time in which God is explicitly mentioned as being actively doing something. And so you have chapters 2 and 3 where there's no explicit reference to the very work of God. And so you must ask and answer the question, where is God during chapter 2 and 3? Now you have one or two answers. Either God is not involved, he's disinterested, he's completely removed himself from the situation and let things run its course. Or second option, God is involved, but he's involved in such a way that his presence and the way in which he's working is hidden from us 
and our ability to see it explicitly. I'm going option two. And the reason I'm going option two is how in the world can God start something that he does not plan to accomplish and somehow in between he's sitting there wringing his hands going, oh, I hope this works. I don't want to worship a God that I can outthink. I don't want to worship a God I can beat up. I don't want to worship a God who is some kind of weak, impotent God. I want to worship God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. He is the God who can do all things. And so God started something in chapter 1. He's finishing it in chapter 4. And just because you can't see him at work explicitly doesn't mean he's not at work. Which means in our own very lives, brothers and sisters, you must realize you may very well see the work of God in your life. You may very, very well may see just this is no explanation, but God has just done this amazing. And there will be other times where months will go by and you won't even recognize what God is up to. You can't see it. You can't perceive it. But the reality is this. Oh, he's at work. God never slumbers. God is never off duty. God is always active. God is always up to something. So between those two chapters, we encounter the hidden hand of God, providentially and sovereignly working to accomplish his purposes. That means there are no accidents. There, are, there is no such thing as luck. There's no coincidences. And this is true of our lives. Whether you are on the mountaintop of bliss or whether you are in the depths of a valley of despair, you must realize God is at work in both. No coincidences, no luck, no accidents. God is working for his glory and our good, whether or not we can see it. And God is going to accomplish his plans and his purposes. Are you ready? Ruth 1. I'm going to read some stuff, and then I'll explain some things, and then we'll continue to read. This is a story. Here's my encouragement to you, Golden Hills. Every week, every week, read the book of Ruth. And you may think, like a chapter a day? No. Read the book of Ruth. Every week, make sure you read it in one sitting, all four chapters. Read it. If you can do it every day, do it every day. It'll take you 18 minutes. If you don't have that kind of time, you need to free up something in your schedule. Read the book of Ruth, four chapters, every day, at least once a week. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. I want to start by just helping us understand the setting. Because in Jewish literature, nothing is a waste. Every setting, every name, every circumstance is meant to communicate something. And so I want to start by just helping us understanding the setting. This takes place in the time of the judges, when the judges ruled. This is not a good period in Israel's history. We've talked about this before. It was a society that was governed by one simple rule, do whatever is best for you. Feels good, do it. If you think it's good, do it. No one can tell you how to be. No one can tell you how to think. No one can tell you what to do. You're the master of your own destiny. It's radical individualism. It's radical immorality. It's just radical chaos. That's why we read in Judges 21, 25, the very end of Judges, the, the verse just before the book of Ruth, 
It reads, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no leader to administer the law of God for the people of God in the land of God. There was just do whatever you want. Feels good, do it. But the reality is this, is the land that God had given his people was a promised land. And he welcomed them into the promised land, as Joshua says. They came into the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. God provided them, and they had rest. But God said, you must, in the land, make sure that you keep covenant. So long as you keep the Mosaic covenant and you obey me, then I will make sure that you are provided. But if you go off track and you're not keeping covenant, you be prepared for discipline. So we read in verse 1 that in the promised land in which God said, keep the covenant, provision will be provided to you, break the covenant, you're going to get disciplined. We read that in the land there was famine, which should have been an indication that things aren't going well. Something's wrong here. God said he would provide and now he's not. Not only that, but this takes place in a place called Bethlehem. We're all very familiar with Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Now you should be laughing because you can see the irony here. In the town called House of Bread, there was no bread. Now you get it. So that should, again, be a wake-up call for the people. How is it that the house of bread, the promised land of God's provision, has no bread and has no provision? What in the world's going on here? It's an indication that the people of Israel have broken the Mosaic Covenant. And then we're introduced to a number of people and their names, Elimelech, Naomi, Malan, and Kilian. Elimelech means, my God is king. And every name in the Hebrew is always meant to convey something about the nature and character of the person. So Elimelech, my God is king, means he's a man who understands that God is his ruler and authority. Naomi's name means pleasant. She's a joyful person to be around. Eventually, we'll be introduced to a woman named Ruth, and her name means refreshing or refreshment. And then there's also Malan and Killian, and we're not sure exactly what their names mean, but scholars think it's somewhere in the vicinity of sickness and weakness. I'd hate for that to be my name. Hey, sickness, get over here. Now, what's interesting is this man, Elimelech, he decides that because there's a famine in the promised land, he's going to go to the country of Moab. And hopefully by going to the country of Moab, he will be able to find the very things that he's looking to find, namely food. He does not want his family to suffer. He does not want his family to go hungry. And so he decides, this is what I'm going to do. The problem is Moab is not a very good place. In fact, you'll read in your book, if you have one, or if you download the PDF, you'll actually read about Moab. It's a, it's a, a land in which the people worshiped a god named Chemosh, and they practiced child sacrifice. They were a sexually immoral society. They were the people who were descended from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter in Genesis 19. So Elimelech decides he's going to leave God's land, he's going to leave God's people, and he's going to head out from Moab in search of food, in search of provision. He probably wants to make sure his family will be provided for. They were not going to starve to death. These are noble desires. Many of us can understand why he did what he did. But they run contrary to God's explicit commands. He's a product of his culture, however. He's going to do what he thinks is best for himself and his family. He's going to throw caution to the wind. He's going to carve out for himself a new life. He's going to grab the bull by the horns. 
I'm going to make something of myself. He failed to remember that Moab is a country that was hired by Balaam to curse the Israelites in number 22 to 24. The women were sent to seduce and deceive the Israelites in Numbers 25. The Moabites were forbidden to be in Israel's assembly. Eglon, who was the king of the Moabites, caused 18 years of torment for the people of Israel in Judges 3. So Elimelech's decision is not a simple decision. It's not a harmless decision. Elimelech was taking his family out of God's promised land, out of God's promises, out of God's provision, away from God's people, abandoning God's people, abandoning God for food. There are times in our lives where we all have defining moments of decision. And those decisions are eventually going to direct and shape the futures of not only us, but our families. And oftentimes, if we're being honest, the factors that go into these decisions are often weighed on the side of providing security, providing comfort, providing something which is easy and expedient. So when we make these decisions, we put all of the factors in a scale, and so long as it tips to easy, comfortable, convenient, simple, we're like, yes. Must be God's will. It's easy. Where do we get the notion that if it's God's will, it must be easy? Not from the Bible. We've adopted that from some other source. What a shame it would be to look at Jesus and say, the cross must have been easy. It was, your, it was God's will. It must have been easy, simple, convenient, comforting. And yet we're told time and time again, you must experience tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Or Jesus says, in this world you will have much tribulation. Those aren't easy words. Those aren't simple words. Those aren't convenient words. Those aren't comfortable words. You don't encourage each other. Hey, don't worry. It's going to get a, a whole heck of a lot harder. <laughs> it's not a good greeting card. But we have to realize that sometimes what is best for us is not always what is easiest. It's not always what is simplest, not always what is most comfortable. And I have to be honest with you, I personally feel the weight of this in decision making as a dad. My kids' social life, their sports, their music, them going to college, all these things are very important. You hear me say that, they're very important. But they are not supremely important. What that means is if we take our families, we take ourselves away from God's people, away from God's provisions in order to pursue our kids' social lives and sports and music and college, and, and so we're, we're looking at these decisions, it's sports or it's church or it's music or it's God's people, or it's the, and you have that comparison, you must realize how in the world can, the, can God be the one providing you with the very thing that is going to take you from what he says is most important in your life? The most important thing in your life is God and his people. How in the world can God give you something which is going to cause you to be distracted from God and abandon his people? It makes no sense. And yet oftentimes we think the decision, okay, whoo, easy, comfortable, simple. Yes, it means sacrificing the kids going to church. Yes, it means sacrificing being in small. Yes, it means sacrificing all this stuff. But look what we will get, college. 
Nobody gets into heaven with their diploma. But God graduated summa cum laude. So how is it that Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, can make such a decision? Easy. Why do you and I make this, that decision? Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, while they were in Moab, he died. And she was left with her two sons, and these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there in, in Moab about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Elimelech tried to avert death, only to go to Moab and experience it himself. They were not supposed to go there. Elimelech dies ten years later. Both of his sons, Malan and Kilian, die. And Naomi is completely distraught. You see, in this culture, the husband, the males in the family were the ones to do the work and to, and to provide for the family. So if you are a woman and now your husband and your two sons have all died, you now have no provisions, you have no work, you have no employment, you have no land, you have no place to live, and you have no hope of ever securing anything for yourself. You are utterly at the disposal and the mercy of other people. You've got nothing. And so here is Naomi with nothing. And in fact, she so lost everything that it doesn't even, in verse 5, it, the verse doesn't even call her Naomi anymore. She can't be called pleasant. She's just the woman. She's lost it all. And then, verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of, to return from the country of Moab. Why? Because she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh, the provider, the covenant God, had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went out on the way to return to the land of Judah. You can see that. Naomi hears that the famine is lifted. God is no longer disciplining his people. There's food. And so she gathers the girls and says, girls, you got to get your stuff together. You better get your sack, put all your stuff in it. We're getting out of Moab. We're going to Judah. God is there. God is providing. Come with me. And so they pack all up. They are in Moab, and they leave everything behind, and they begin their journey walking towards Judah. They're heading to the promises of God. They're heading to the, uh, the providence of God. They're heading to Yahweh and his people. And while they're on the way, somewhere between Moab and Judah, this happens, verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you into your people. And so you see what's happening is Naomi's making an appeal to her two daughters-in-law while they're in between two destinations. She's calling them to just turn back around. She understands probably that heading to Judah is not going to be necessarily a good thing. She doesn't have a house to return to. She has no land to return to. She has no way of providing for herself and the two daughters. She has no, nothing to look forward to. So she probably gets it in her mind going, uh-oh. So she turns to her daughters and simply says, you know what? 
you are Moabite women, you should go back to Moab, go back to your customs, go back, go back to what is comfortable, go back to your language, go back to your family, go back to your friends. Why don't you go there and find comfort in your mother's house? Perhaps you're young enough, you can find another young Moabite boy and marry him and, and, and have kids and a family. Your future and everything that you want is back in Moab, just go. All that Naomi can offer is Yahweh. All I know for certain is that Yahweh and his people are there in the promised land. That's all I got for you. I got nothing else, for sure. The girls weep, and because of custom, they don't abandon her. They stay with her. No, we're going with you. So Naomi makes a second appeal to encourage them to turn around, this time a little more forceful. She says in verse 11, no, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marriage? No. No. In other words, the only way for me to provide for you is if I get married and I'm old. I ain't getting married. No one wants to marry me. Not only that, but even if I got married, I couldn't even have sons and, and have sons for you to marry, according to Deuteronomy 25, and, 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 and carry on the legacy. You can't do that. And even if I was to get married and have sons, are you seriously going to wait that long? Time's ticking. It's, it's ridiculous. You guys need to go back home. I got nothing for you. And then she reveals her heart and her mindset. She says this, the rest of verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. We went to Moab with hope. We went to Moab with this plan. And I've lost everything. So when I look at you, I don't just see my two Moabite daughters-in-law. What I see is Elimelech and Malan and Kilian, and I'm just reminded of how bitterly God has dealt with me. And seeing you, there's no longer joy. There's just pain. It'd be easier if you just went back home. It'd be simpler. You could go find a Moabite boy to marry. It'd be quicker. You'd have your language and customs. It's just a whole lot less complicated if you would just... Go back. Verse 14. And then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah decides, you know what? It's probably true. There's probably not much waiting for me in, Ju in Judah. It'd be much more convenient to go back. It'd be much more comfortable. It'd be much more familiar. I know the language already. I already know the customs. I know what awaits me. And if you and I were put in that position where we must choose between not God's people, God's people, between Chemosh and false gods and with the true God, by the way, which all of us must choose. All of us must choose whether we will serve God or whether we will not serve God and we will stay in our sin and we will stay cut off from his people. Orpah decides convenience and comfort and safety and ease is far more important. 
So she kisses her mother-in-law and she heads back to Moab. She walks right out of the pages of the Bible. However, that's not the response of Ruth. Ruth clings to Naomi. And that word cling in Hebrew is the same word that is used to describe the way a man and a woman will leave their families and they will cling to one another in marriage. It signifies the utter dependency upon one another and the need to be so committed to one another that you are going to care for one another. Sickness and in health, plenty and in want, we're going to be in this together. You and me, Naomi. So then Naomi tries a third time. I imagine she's probably thinking, when I show up in Judah, when I show up in Bethlehem, that's going to be weird. I left over 10 years ago. I abandoned God and his people. I left them in the dust. And now I'm coming back with nothing, and I'm going to have to tell everyone what happened. I don't know if I want to do that. So she makes this third appeal, verse 15. She says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi makes this appeal. You know what? You can go back to your land. You're familiar with it. You can go back to your people. You're familiar with them. You can go back to your gods. And what she does is she makes sure that we understand that it's inextricably linked, those three things, the the presence of God, which is the land and God himself and the people of God, to the effect that you can't have one without the other. If you go back to the land, you're going back to the land's gods. If you go back to the land and those gods, you're going back to the people of the land and the gods whom they worship. You're, You're going back to all of it. It's either you have it all or you have none of it. And so what's so important for us to see here is just how linked it is, God and his people in the presence of God, they must come together as a package. So then let's look at Ruth's response. (laughs) Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Or in other words, Naomi, shut your mouth. She replies, for where you go, I'm going to go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me. And more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that, Ruth was determined to go with her. She said, no more. There's a connection between God and his people to the effect that, and and Ruth understood it, for Ruth to make the radical commitment to be with Naomi through thick and thin, she is having at that moment to make the decision to abandon, to turn her back on Moab and the people of Moab and the god Chemosh. So she stood right in the middle. You must make a decision. Go, come. And all of us have to make that decision. You either go to God and turn from your idols or turn your back on God and have your idols. You can't be in both. And they're not going to set up their camp somewhere between Moab and Ruth. They left Moab. The decision time is upon us. And Ruth has made her decision. I'm going with you. Orpah made her decision. I'm going back to my sin. And the reality is this, brothers and sisters, you know how intricately intricately related that concept is. You cannot have God and not his people. Likewise, you cannot have God's people and not have God. They are linked together. 
And this is what's called the second family. The second family. We all understand that we're all born into a first family. We get that. You all have mothers and fathers and you have sons and daughters and all that kind of stuff. And that's the first family. But what scripture is now teaching us is that there's a different kind of family. It's called the second family. The second family is those who are committed because of their commitment to God, they're also committed to God's people. You can't have God and not his church. And you can't want the church and ignore God. It's both. You see, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, which meant there were some things that I had no idea how to, hand, how to handle. I had no idea how to read a Bible. I don't know. It was weird. Genealogies? I had no idea how to, how to handle certain things. I, and when I became a Christian, I, it was like, where do I go to learn how to pray? Where do I go to learn how to study? What, what happens? And so at my church in Fairfield, there was a, a bunch of people who recognized the fact that I wasn't taught this in my home, and so therefore somebody needs to teach me. And so instead of them saying, well, you need to go buy a book, you need to YouTube that, instead I was invited into homes and so every Friday night, I was at the great house, and I was eating spaghetti, and I was playing board games, and I was learning how to read the Bible. And then I was in a small group on Tuesday nights at a coffee shop, and I would go there, and I would be with these men, and we would pray and talk about Scripture, and they would teach me what to do. And in that moment, I recognized I was a spiritual orphan. I didn't have access to the second family until those people decided to make me a priority. And that is what the church is meant to be, second family. We are supposed to be brothers and sisters. We're supposed to grow one another up in faith and love. And we're supposed to grow individually and together. And we do that corporately, individually. But we are nonetheless doing it together because you can't have God and not his people. One of the things you got when you came to God was you got me. And what... And one of the things that you also got was the person at the end of your pew who you refused to meet, even though you've been sitting next to each other for eight years. <laughs> and sometimes we think, well, what if I don't want them? No, 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 no. That's not yours. There's many children who go, I don't want a little brother or sister. Too bad. <laughs> God is our father. We are brothers and sisters. And here's the reality. We are in this together. And we have to be a church that is second family oriented. We must be, as the Bible calls it, disciples. And we must disciple one another. Now here's the reality of it. Had it not been for that second family, I don't know where I would have been. I probably would have maintained my spiritual orphanage and orphan status. I would have been just left out to dry. And here's the thing, the question I always ask myself, how do you navigate the wilds of this world without some sort of guidance? And people say, well, you have a guidance. You have a compass and a map right here. You have to teach people how to use a compass. And if you give somebody a, topog a topographical map, you have to teach them how to, how to read it. Don't give me this compass and map nonsense and slide a Bible across me. No, 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 teach me. Teach me. Teach me how to read this compass. Teach me how to read this map. Disciple me. Here's the thing is God has given you children and grandchildren as your first family, 
not because your first family is an end in and of itself, it is the sole purpose for which you exist, but your family, first family, is meant as a provision of God to help you with the next generation and every generation subsequently that flows from that to take your first family and ensure that they become second family. That is called discipleship. That's what men and women who are mothers and fathers and grandparents, that's what we're supposed to do. So when we have the scales of decision, college or church, you go, you can't choose college over church because you're God and his people together. First family always leads to second family. Second family extends into eternity. First family will one day have an expiration date. We can't prioritize what is temporal over what is eternal. Oh, what Ruth does is foreshadow and demonstrate what it means to be a follower of her future offspring, Jesus. Ruth turned her back on Moab and her gods, and she turned her face towards Yahweh. And in that, she laid down her life for her family, who is now only Naomi. Jesus did the same thing. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus has loved us so much that he willingly and joyfully laid down his life for you and I. So that by his death and the blood that was shed on that cross, he may purchase for all eternity his church. Those who would be considered his brothers and sisters. Ruth also foreshadows and demonstrates what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the sense that she was willing to radically commit herself to the people of God and to God himself. Look at this in 1 John 3.16, which leads us to that. By this we know love. The Apostle John says that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and because of that, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, the church, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters, siblings. Knowing how much God loves us, that he sent his one and only son to rescue us from our sin and from the wrath of God, not reluctantly, but joyfully, that changes how we live and how we love others. It should make us radically generous. It should make us ra radically sacrificial. It should make us radically hospitable. We should be the most gracious people on planet Earth because we have received the most grace any person can receive in that we were given Jesus, the Son of God. Amen. So that should reflect. That should reflect in the church. That should reflect in how we eat together and love one another and pray with one another and encourage one another, not with stupidity. I don't know what God's doing. He's not really in control. I guess you gotta buck up. But we comfort people with truth. God is in control. He's gonna see you through this. Luke 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 23 to 25, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit himself? Elimelech, was going to Moab worth it? Was it worth it? You gained what you wanted and you still died. If we choose Moab, all that awaits us is death. But if we choose Judah and Yahweh and God's people, what awaits us is life. But you have to choose. 
You must, like Ruth, turn from your wicked ways and embrace all that God has for you. As I preached last week, we must repent and believe the gospel. This is a daily thing. We follow Jesus daily. Every day we wake up, we crucify the self. It's not what I desire, but it's what you want. Every day we recall the gospel. I am nothing apart from the grace of God. Apart from Christ, I have nothing. I am nothing. But in him, I have everything. And I'm experiencing everything that God wants for me. For if you will lose your life in this world, you will gain your life in the next. The book of Ruth is the most beautiful story I know about redemption. And so I'm going to pray that as we close this service and sing, that God will sow into our hearts this truth. God is for us and not against us, those of us who are in the covenant, those of us who are born again. The promise of God is true. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm in control. I'm going to bring about good. You just wait and see. So, Father, we ask that this church would be what it is that you want it to be. And as we read scripture, we're starting to see that what your church is meant to be is a place in which people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group, with whatever sordid background that they have, they do not need to become righteous in order to be accepted by you, but you welcome them and you call them to yourself so that in coming to you, they may be made righteous. And you have done this according to your grace and mercy. There is nothing within us which warrants or demands that you ought to do this. Instead, you did it freely and lovingly. And so, God, with that truth, would you allow that truth to penetrate our hearts, causing us to be radically generous, radically sacrificial, radically loving, radically committed to you and your people. So that when we proclaim the gospel to those who do not yet believe in you and who, do, who are not yet a part of this church, they would hear not only a spoken gospel, but they would see a lived gospel. And I pray that you would help us to authenticate the truth that you love us. And therefore, we ought to love one another. God, thank you for who you are. You are Yahweh. You are the faithful one. You are the loving one. You are the one who has mercy and patience. You are the one who will provide. You are the one in whom we will see and delight. You are our greatest joy. For your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.